0: There was great celebration in 1945 and joy right around the world because World War II was over, and uh, prisoners were released, and many people went home to their families. But for one group of four Japanese soldiers who had been fighting in the jungles of the Philippines, they didn't believe the war was over, and so they continued to fight and hid in the jungle. They thought that the good news was a hoax, and they didn't believe that the surrender had happened. So under the leadership, there were four men. There were four of them. The leader was, uh, I'll get his name right if I can, Second Lieutenant Hiro Onoda. And under his leadership, these four men hid in the jungle, eating when they could coconuts and bananas, and they were stealing from the local farmers and livestock, and they were attacking the locals at times too, and they were performing this sort of guerrilla-type warfare. Believe it or not, this went on for some time. And many unsuccessful attempts were made to locate these men hiding in the jungle. Seven years later, in 1952, airplanes dropped letters and s- photographs from the family over the jungle to try and reach these guys, let them still know that things had changed. But they s- decided this was still another trick. And believe it or not, by 1974, Second Lieutenant Onoda was still there. Now he was alone. And there were many stories from the local farmers being told of of this soldier who'd even killed some civilians, believing them to be their enemy. And a Japanese student back in Japan decided he wanted to make it his real quest to try and find Ornada and to persuade him that the war was over. So after quite a lot of time and difficulty going through the jungles of the Philippines, he finally found him. But when he found him, he still couldn't convince him to surrender. He said, what will it take? And this was the reply, a direct order from my commanding officer. So the student went back to Japan, the government located the former commanding officer, and he was sent by the Japanese government with orders for Onoda to stand down. And for him, the war was finally over, in March 1974, 29 years after World War II ended. True story. See, for all those years, Ornard couldn't accept the good news that the hostilities were long over. He thought it was a hoax. The war had ended, he just did not believe this good news. It was too good to be true. In his mind, the war was still a reality. The reality and the tragedy is that many people today think the good news of the gospel is too good. And they think it's a hoax. It can't be true. And for many, even if they believe that God is real, they think he's against them anyway. He's impossible to please. He's out to punish them for every mistake and every sin. And he's angry at them all the time. He's waiting to pass harsh judgment on them. God isn't on their side. In fact, he's almost their enemy. What a tragedy. They haven't realized their hostilities are over. The gap between God and man has been paid. The penalty for sin has been paid by the blood of Jesus Christ and the Prince of Peace now sits on the throne. Whatever other needs every human being has, we all have the need of good news. Would you agree with me on that? That's precisely what the gospel is. The gospel is actually the the best good news or the, the goodest good news that has ever, ever been given. And it's good news for everyone. You've heard me say this before. When the angel came to the shepherds, when Jesus was being born, he said this, Luke 2.10, Don't be afraid, I bring you good news that will bring great joy to all people. The good news of the gospel brings great joy. And it's good news for every person and every culture and every generation. You know, good news is usually quite selective, isn't it? The same piece of good news that it'd be great for someone else is actually bad news for someone else. It brings joy to the first lot of people and doesn't give any joy to the second lot of people. The, The news that New Zealand cricket team has now progressed to the World Cup final is good news, which has brought great joy to Kiwis. Isn't that right? But no joy to the Indian team or their supporters and their fans back home. So this piece of good news was bad news for others, right? But the gospel is entirely different. The gospel good news is unique because it's exactly the same good news for all people. Brings great joy to all people. No exceptions. No one excluded. Not just for the elite few, but the wonderful benefits of the good news of the gospel are the same for every human being. That means if we're not giving people good news then we, when we talk about being a Christian, then we're not presenting them with the gospel. If any gospel leaves you fearful of an angry and judgmental God, then it's not the gospel. If any gospel leaves you worried about or unsure whether God will accept you or forgive you, then it's not the gospel. If any gospel makes you think that you're not doing enough or not working hard enough to achieve your salvation, then it's not the gospel. Are you with me this morning? Any of those so-called gospels are like you're still in the war like you're still hiding in the jungle, like you're trying to fight your way to freedom when freedom has already been won by the Lord Jesus Christ. I recently read a book called The book, The Gospel in Ten Words. Some of you might have read it, The Gospel in Ten Words by Paul Ellis, which inspired me to think that for the next few times I speak, which is going to be a few just scattered around the next few months, I thought I'd like to go back to look at some of the incredible but simple truths of the gospel. And here's the first great truth of the gospel this morning. You are loved. You are loved. That's great news. Been a number of babies born in the church recently. Well, not on the church building, but you know, there's <laughs> a lot of number of babies been born to people who come to church here at this campus and at the campus out at Selwyn. And some of these babies are being dedicated later in the service, actually. You know, without exception, I've found that new parents say that how amazed they are when they first look at their newborn baby, how this overwhelming love just sort of happens to be there for it. They've never seen it before, but suddenly here there's this love that comes. I had that with our babies when they were born, and I've had it surprisingly with all our grandchildren when they were born. I'm not being surprised because they're not lovable, but surprised that you feel that same feeling when you're... When you look at your grandchild for the first time. And at the beginning, of course, all that a baby does is sort of eat and sleep and fill its nappies and eat and fill its nappies and sleep and fill its nappies and cry and fill its nappies and, you know, and probably in a different order than that. But you know what I mean, don't you? There's not much else that happens. But as the months go by and they get a bit of understanding we spend time training them, don't we? We spend time guiding them and helping them learn what's acceptable behavior and what's not acceptable behavior and what's wrong and, and what's right, helpfully. And, and they do a lot of things we don't appreciate, don't they, really? But And as they get a little older, around two or three, they start to test the boundaries, don't they? And See whether they can get away with something, and they start to do things around two or three that they know they shouldn't do. Now they didn't know when they were little, but now they start to know that they shouldn't be doing it. And we would just call that just plain naughty, right? And we say that was naughty. Don't do that again. But I guess what they do it again. So we persevere, and they persevere, and we persevere, and they persevere, and you know, there's a bit of a war that goes on with, for a little while there. But we would never say to our two- or three-year-old, well, I'd hope we never would, you've been naughty, I don't love you anymore. And as the years go by, even if they go off the rails or get into trouble with the law or make some stupid decisions in life and, and do things which really we know are bad for their lives, we still try to be there for them somehow, don't we? Why? Because we love them even though what's happening and what they're doing and the decisions they're making might break our heart, at times we don't say to them, because you've done these dumb things or these stupid decisions, I don't love you anymore. Yet how is it that we get the idea that God isn't as loving as we are? We give people the impression that God will love us more if we'll only keep all the Ten Commandments, but if we will love us less if we break one of them. He'll only love us if we're good, but He won't love us if we're bad. His love is conditional based on our behavior. He'll punish us and abandon us if we misbehave. He won't love us anymore if we sin or mess up in any way. So what does the Bible say about this? Psalm 106 verse 1 Great verse, praise the Lord. Give thanks to the Lord for he is good. His love endures forever. Great two words, endures. and for, Endures, you know, through all things, for all time, endures forever. Psalm 54 verse 10, though the mountains be shaken and the hills be removed, yet my unfailing love for you will not be shaken, nor my covenant of peace be removed, says the Lord who has compassion on you. That verse doesn't say, my unfailing love for you will be shaken and will fail when you do such and such. It's unconditional. God's love never fails. It never changes. God's love is totally, totally unconditional. It's a tragedy. I think that so many people, even in church, think that God's love for them is completely dependent on the way they behave. A few years ago, when the chairs were a bit different from what they are now, we were sitting over here, and one of our granddaughters was standing next to, to Jill during one of the songs. She was four at the time, I remember. Uh, not Jill, but the granddaughter. And <laughs> we, were, we were singing that song, Your Love Never Changes. Granddaughter, four-year-old, turned to Jill and said, I love that song. And Jill said, do you, dear? You know. She said, Yes, I love it because it says, even when I make mistakes, God still loves me. Wow. A four year old had that revelation. I pray she never loses it, right? If only all of us who are older would have the same revelation of that wonderful gospel truth. When I make mistakes or we'll stuff up in some way, God doesn't turn his back on me and say, when you sort yourself out, I'll love you, but until then, I don't love you anymore. I'll only love you if. I'll only love you if you read your Bible so much more than you're reading right now. I'll only read you if you pray longer than what you're playing right now. I'll only p- love you if you work harder for me. I'll only love you if you stop thinking those rank thoughts that you've been thinking. I'll only love you if you stop doing that particular thing that's not good for you. I'll only love you if. Fill in the blank, you know Here are my conditions for me to love you. I've got news for you this morning. That's bondage. That's religion. It sucks the abundant life of God out of you. It's based on a wrong concept of God. His love for you is unchanging. It's unconditional. God's love never was and never will be based on our performance or our lack of it. It's based on God's character and God's character is love. Paul, those verses you use at the Old Testament, you know, in and, and the Old Testament verses, and I read a lot of Old Testament myself, and, and, and they say that God is angry with sin. Yes, He is. He loves people with an all-powerful, everlasting love, but he's also always been very angry with sin because he knows how sin destroys the lives of the people he loves so passionately. You got that? Here's the good news. God judged sin and dealt with it once and for all over 2,000 years ago. Listen to this verse from Romans chapter 8. Romans is one of my favorite books. I've been reading it over and over lately. I I finish it and go back and start again. Still don't know much about it. Romans 8 verse 3. The law of Moses was unable to save us because of the weakness of our sinful nature. So God did what the law could not do. He sent his own son in a body like the bodies we sinners have. And in that body, God declared an end to sin's control over us by giving his son as a sacrifice for our sins. Did you get that phrase? God declared an end to sin's control over us. I think that might have been a cough of amen. I'm not sure. God declared an end to sin's control over us. Does anyone like that thought? God declared it. And when God declares something, it really does something. He declared, let there be light and there was light. He spoke into the dust of the earth and formed man by his word. When God says something, something happens. God declared an end to sin's control over us. Here, The cross is God shouting at sin, let my people go. Sin's price has been paid. It is finished. It is accomplished. Now I know we can hardly get our minds around that. The trouble is we get our mind in the way. It's our heart that responds to God, not our head. Sometimes our head follows on well after, but if we try and do it the other way around, we get ourselves into big trouble. We've done nothing to deserve this, and we can never, ever do something to deserve it. God has done it all out of his all-powerful, unfailing love. Romans 5 verse 8. But God showed his great love for us by sending Christ to die for us when we cleaned ourselves up and began to be good and deserve it. Sorry, that was the wrong translation. God showed his great love for us by sending Christ to die for us when? While we were still Sinners. What sort of love is that? God didn't wait till we started behaving ourselves and were being good until he showed his great love. He did so while we are still sinners. He says, you are loved. I love you. I made you. You are mine. I saved you and purchased you with the blood of Jesus Christ. We can't put, we can't, we can't put qualifying statements on the extent and the power of God's love. We can never say God loves you except when you you do this. Well, don't do that. Well, God loves you when, Or well, God loves you but. No exclusion causes to the love of God. God doesn't love us because we are lovely. He doesn't love us because we're cute and lovable. He loves us because he is love. It's his nature to love us. With no exceptions. Love is his motivation for everything he does. God's love is not less than the greatest love of humans. His love is infinitely greater. It's unconditional. Will last throughout all eternity. Let's go back to second lieutenant Hiro Onoda for a moment. Onoda, sorry. I guess he's not here to worry about it, so it doesn't matter. It's okay. Once he was finally convinced by that order that came from the government and via his commanding officer to stand down 29 years later, once he was finally convinced of that truth, he became a changed man. He stopped being a danger to the Filipino farmers and later, in fact, was pardoned by the president of the Philippines for the lives he had taken, bearing in mind he believed that the war was still on. Ornard later donated money to build a school in the Philippines in the area he'd been a fugitive in the jungle there for all those years. And he also set up educational camps in different parts of Japan for young people. He died at the age of 91 in 2014. The truth was, the war had ended 29 years before. But it was only when Ornoda was convinced about the truth that it had any effect on his life. There's no question that God loves you. He has shown it so clearly. That's the truth. But the truth itself doesn't set you free. It's knowing the truth. It's being convinced about the truth that sets you free. And once you're convinced of God's love for you, you'll be completely changed. The Apostle Paul was one that had the truth. He was raised and educated in such a way that he was virtually an expert in the law and the Old Testament. But with all that truth he had, he terrorized and persecuted the early Christians. One day, Paul had an encounter with the love of God personified in Jesus Christ. That encounter transformed him. And you hear what he says in Galatians 2 verse 20. He says, The life I now live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me, there's that word, and gave himself for me. Now, when I was young, we used to sing a hymn. Some of you might know this one, one of the many that Charles Wesley wrote. It was one he wrote to about his experience of great joy when he became a Christian. The chorus says this, some of you know this, amazing love, how can it be that thou, my God, should die for me? Amazing love, how can it be? And see, we have the apostle Paul writing, God loved me, Jesus loved me, Jesus gave himself for me. And here we have Wesley saying, amazing love, God should die for me. The truth already existed before Paul and Wesley both stumbled upon that, before they believed it. But the truth didn't change them. Their lives were completely transformed when they were personally convinced about the truth and they knew it for themselves. Many years ago, Jill and I lived in Wellington for a while and we survived living in Wellington, by the way, too. Sorry, Paul, who's from Wellington. Born and bred... Delivered when he came to Christchurch, but he's here. He saw the light. We got to know some amazing people that we were with in that time. One was a young man called Joe. Joe had been a gang leader in a very famous gang in the time. He was a street fighter, really tall guy, strong, athletic, violent young man. He told me that how he would walk down Cuba Mall in Wellington And by the time he got to the other end of Cuba Mall, he was so exhausted because he hated everybody he saw. But when he understood the good news of the gospel, and when that truth came as a revelation to his life that God actually loved him, he received that love, and the transformation in his life was incredible. He had this amazing beaming smile with a few teeth missing, And he loved people with the love of God. See, the greatest word for love that's ever been spoken is Jesus. If the gospel could be summed up in one word, it would be Jesus. If someone asks you why you're a Christian, the answer is Jesus. If they ask you what makes someone a Christian, our answer should be, well, it's not in keeping the Ten Commandments. It's not even trying to live a good life. It's not trying to do good for others. In fact, it's not trying to do anything at all because nothing can ever be enough, but it's responding to the great, unfailing, everlasting love of God displayed in Jesus. That's the truth of the gospel. Paul tells us that absolutely nothing can ever separate us from the love of God. No circumstance, nothing in our past, nothing in our future, not even physical death can separate us from His unfailing love, because He keeps loving us right throughout eternity. There's absolutely no question this morning that God loves you. The real question is, do you love Him in return? The only thing that can separate you from the love of God, and from experiencing His love in your life, is your refusal to receive it. Everything changes when you respond to his love and receive it. What a transformation that many of us here know has happened in our lives. There's only ever been one place for us to find the unconditional love of God that we all need. It's in the love of God through Jesus. That is the good news of the gospel. Gospel is God's passionate declaration of his undying love for us. It's unconditional, unchanging, everlasting. We close our eyes for a moment this morning. I'm going to ask the team to come back up. Very shortly, we're going to sing a song. Before we do that, can we just all contemplate for a moment? And I know this has been a simple message today. but I love it. We have to be reminded of God's love for us. In a world that does everything it can to undermine things we believe in, things we stand, hold to be true, even our own confidence and our own abilities, just so many things come against us. Life is difficult. In the midst of all of it, God loves you. I just wonder if we can have a few moments quietness before we start even playing anything. Is that okay, team? Just in these moments, I'm going to ask the Holy Spirit to speak into our hearts. Even the baptism of the Holy Spirit is God baptizing us with love, really. Overflowing himself, filling us with himself. Holy Spirit, I ask this morning, can you come with a revelation of your love? Far beyond words that have been said today. I know, Lord, that you can come and speak into hearts right now that are far beyond my or anyone else's ability to speak it. So we invite you, Holy Spirit, to come. Overshadow us with your love. Lord, this morning, those who have had difficulty accepting the love of God in their lives, I'm praying right now that they will have that revelation of the truth. They will know the truth. They will experience the truth. Holy Spirit comes.